Time to get to God's Word. Good morning. Grace and peace to, to you guys. Hey, before we're going into in the beginning, begin, open up the front of your Bibles, Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be reading some verses from there in just a minute. But before we do that, in my devotions uh, this week, I've been, I've, been read, I've been in the Gospel of Luke for my devotions, and I was reading the story of Zacchaeus. You remember Zacchaeus? You remember him from all your children's ministry days? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. But Zacchaeus, I was struck by that passage of Scripture because it says that Zacchaeus was seeking Jesus. Seeking, the word, if you look it up, means he was trying to obtain something. There was something he realized that Jesus had that he needed. And and the Scripture tells us that he was a wee little man, couldn't see Jesus, so what did he do? He ran on ahead and climbed up into a tree. He dealt with whatever obstacles were keeping him from seeing Jesus. And I believe there's obstacles in this room right now that are keeping us from seeing Jesus, that will keep us from seeing Jesus this morning as the word is preached. And what God is encouraging you to do is run on ahead and climb a tree. So let's pray that God would remove all obstacles so that we could see Jesus for who he is. If you're comfortable with this, just open your hands to God and invite him to remove any obstacles that would keep you from seeing Jesus. Lord, we want to see Jesus. We need to see Jesus. Lord, would you help to remove blinders? Would you help to remove any obstacles? Lord, if there's concerns that we have, we cast them on you right now. And we ask that you would help us to see Jesus. We need him. In his name we pray. Amen. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. You'll notice that I read the same seven verses that Isaac read and uh, preached to us last week. I read all seven of them because I wanted to provide the context necessary for us to unpack verse 7. 
I'll read it again. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. One of the reasons why I like art in all different forms is because different forms of art can make you feel things or can bring to life certain truths. So I like visual art. I like different types of music. I don't, I don't find myself just inclining to one genre of music. I like listening to different types of music. I like, I like looking at visual art. I like looking at paintings because they can allow us to feel the impact of something that someone has taken time to create. So I wanted to start with some art this morning. Hip-hop artist Shy Lin gave some thought to this passage, Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. And he said some things in a way that helped me to climb up inside this passage and to feel it. I'm not going to rap this morning. I'm just going to read what he wrote, and you can follow along. But listen to this. I think it's good writing. I think it's good art. The world we live in wasn't always like this. The early days had perfect righteousness and bright bliss. Man and woman under God ruled government at first, bubbling with mirth, immersed in loving with no hurts. God gave what theologians call the covenant of works, forbidden fruit. The day you eat of it, you'll be cursed. Husband wasn't alert. Wife lacked discernment, entrapped by the serpent, and that was the first sin. The consequences were monumental. In fact, I'm not convinced they had a clue what they'd gotten into. Their eyes were open more. Truth in the lies. To their surprise, they didn't get the prize they were hoping for. They see their nakedness and now regret it. They try to cover their guilt and then blame shift. How pathetic. And it's a true story. You want some evidence? We've been doing the same thing ever since. It hits, doesn't it? This story that we're reading, contrary to what culture people might say in culture or what even you might think, is not some legend. It's not some myth. It's not some famous piece of literature. The Bible records this story as true, as real, as having as, as historical, as having really happened. And the consequences of humanity's fall into sin, as described here by the writer Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, are as real a, a reality that we experience day in and day out as what Adam and Eve experienced that day in the garden. Whether we live with an awareness or not of sin's presence is another question. The snake has been described by the narrator as more crafty, shrewd. That should have alerted every reader, including us, to weigh the words that it speaks very carefully. This is how we should always evaluate words of temptation. 
This is how we should always evaluate the words that sin speaks. Sin may not be saying what it seems to be saying. Don't take temptations, don't take sin's words, don't take temptation's words, just like we shouldn't take the crafty serpent's words at face value like the woman did. Now, we notice also the presence of the snake in the garden. That's a whole theological question, but which shows that malevolent Satan was in the garden. So is sin's presence with us. Sin's presence with you. Sin's presence with me. If you are here and you don't know the presence of wrong at all in your life, would you please come talk to me after the service? Because I would love to meet you. <laughs> I don't think I'll be talking to anybody about that. Sin is with us every day in the garden variety stuff of our lives. Though its dominion has been broken for everyone that is in Christ, it will not win over us in the end, amen? It can score temporary victories over us because its presence with us remains. Humanity suffered a devastating loss here. What the scripture makes clear is what happened afterwards. The scripture makes clear that what happened afterwards is that the eyes of both of them were opened. Doesn't sound like a, necessarily like a negative thing. But we do say that their eyes were opened and then they knew something. They realized something, that they were naked. Now, I want, to, I want you to flip back in your Bibles because it hasn't been long since we talked about shame and nakedness. Look at Genesis 2, verse 25. We're at the pinnacle of creation. God has created man and woman. And at the end of verse Chapter 2, verse 25, Moses writes this. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Something happened. Because now we know that the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Naked in the end of chapter 2 seems to have a positive doesn't seem it has a positive context it's positive here it's not positive it's negative here and after their disobedience their eyes were opened just like the serpent said they would be and they realized they're naked but now it's accompanied by shame Now, when it was too late, Matthew Henry, a pastor from many years ago, just made a list of some of the things that they saw. Now, when it was too late, this is what they saw. They saw the folly of eating the forbidden fruit. 
Now they see it. You've experienced this too, haven't you? You've done something you knew you shouldn't have been wrong. And then as soon as you did it, you started to feel the negative feelings that associate that. So they saw the folly of eating the forbidden fruit. They saw their loss of true, real happiness and joy. They saw their misery, the misery they'd fallen into. They saw their God, their creator, provoked. They saw his grace and his favor forfeited. They saw his image in them lost. They saw their natures corrupted. They saw the painful distress of soul that they've never, ever, ever been aware of before. They saw themselves stripped of robes of honor. They saw disgrace in the highest degree. They saw themselves laid open to the contempt and reproach of heaven and earth. And they saw the weight of a guilty conscience. Anybody feeling me? The knowledge of these things is painful. It was painful for Adam and Eve. And it's a pain we know to be ours. It was so painful for them that here in verse 7, we see them, they immediately took steps to deny it or at least to cover it up and to hide it. So this is this morning's organizing question. What are the painful effects of the fall? I want to give you three. Three ever-present painful feelings that are the effects of the fall. We're only going to get to two this morning because verse 8 is going to highlight the third one, and we're going to look at verse 8 next week. Three, though, so this will be part one. I'll give you one and two. Three ever-present painful feelings that are the effects of the fall. These are feelings that are present at this historic moment in human history, and these are ever-present feelings that, are, are, that we're aware of in our personal histories right here, right now. Now, pain is interesting because pain is an interesting conduct, concept because pain sometimes can be felt very acutely, and then there can be pain that we learn to live with. It's a difference like this. There is, a, there is a, uh, a pain that you feel when you're swinging a hammer and you get your thumb in the way. That is like an acute, uh, everybody knows that you're in pain moment. But that kind of pain is different than the dull ache of a partial tear of your rotator cuff that you just learn to live with over time. Different kinds of pain, right? More often, though, pain is like a dull ache. It's with us all the time, but we've learned to live with it. We've learned to medicate it. We've learned how to dull the ache. We've learned how to distract ourselves from feeling it. So think of pain and the pain the way I'm describing it in both ways. Something that we feel sometimes acutely, but sometimes it's those thoughts that hang over our head that we only think about when the lights are out and we're drifting off to sleep. Three ever-present painful feelings. The first one, guilt. Guilt. I wish I could tell you that you could get out of this sermon and this service 
without relating to anything that I'm going to preach. But I would tell you this, you should get up, if you don't want to feel these things, you should get up and walk out. Because the sermon, God's word, is going to address each of us. Guilt. What is guilt? It's the painful or unpleasant feeling caused by doing something wrong. It's what guilt is. We're all familiar with it. So it's what you feel when you've committed an offense or committed a crime. Do you know what it feels to be under the weight of guilt? I know you do. Only a couple people answered, but I know all of you do. I can remember one situation in particular. I was thinking about it this week where I, I, was, uh, I was the person responsible for helping an older person who, had, uh, who, had, who was dealing with guilt but they had spent hundreds of thousands of dollars selfishly and now got themselves into a jam where they had no money to take care of themselves. And so I was sitting with this person trying to help them understand, one, to try to fix their financial struggles, but also to try to help them apply the gospel to their lives because they had done some really wrong things with their money. And I'll never forget sitting at the table. And I remember Amy was kind of standing on the outside and I was sitting at the table with this person and I was trying to understand. I was trying to get them to at least take responsibility for the things that they had done. And I'll never forget how uncomfortable, I've never seen anything like it, someone who was experiencing guilt but just could not look at it. I, they started biting their nails in a way I've never seen anybody bite their nails. They're going to get couldn't look me in the eyes, started biting her nails, um, couldn't, couldn't like look at this. I was trying to, you've got to look at this. We've got to look at this together. Could not do it. Couldn't bear the pain of her guilt being exposed. I felt that way. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been in a situation where your guilt felt so heavy, but you couldn't bear the idea of owning it? I gotta keep this a secret. There must be some kind of way out of these feelings without my having to take responsibility for this. I can't stomach the thought of taking responsibility for this. So what do we try to do? We try to get rid of those feelings. We try to get rid of our guilt. And the most common method we use to get rid of guilt is denial. And, that's, and denial takes many forms. The one that I want to highlight right now is blame shifting. This is what we see happen, and we'll see this Further, as we get into the, the texts that are coming, but many of you know the story. Adam and Eve were, were uh, the first uh, excellent blame shifters. Well, they were excellent at shifting blame. They weren't excellent at getting rid of their guilt. But they were, they, they're, they're our first blame shifters, and we've been doing the same thing ever since. So God comes into the garden to confront them with their rebellion. And what do we have? Adam blamed Eve. And then 
the audacity, he blamed God. Genesis 3.12. Here's what he says. The woman you put here with me. So he ain't taking, I ain't taking this. She is the one that you should be talking to. And it's the woman, I just want to make you aware, God, it's the woman that you gave to me. The woman that you made. So the problem's yours, God. But then Eve, what does she do? She blames the serpent. The serpent deceived me and I ate it. Today, we do the same thing. We blame everybody. We blame our parents. We blame our kids. We blame our spouses. We blame our personality type. We blame our medication. We blame our lack of medication. We blame our culture. We blame our education. We blame our family. We blame our lack of opportunity. We blame our circumstances. We will blame anything and anyone but ourselves. We look to deny our guilt to shift the blame onto others rather than admit our own responsibility and guilt before God and before others. But it doesn't stop. Denial doesn't stop at blame shifting. Remember, you got these little uh, things that you were taught when you were young that stick with you. My dad taught me once when I was in a barn that uh, we saw all these rats running around. And... Uh, and so I think me and my brother were chasing the rats or something like that. And he told me this. He said this. I don't know if it's true, but he's, he, I've never had this happen. But he told me, he said, hey, watch out. If you corner a rat, it'll jump for your jugular. That's what he told me. So he always told me, like, if you're chasing a rat, just don't get it into the corner. Because if you corner it, it's desperate. You can jump. Grab your neck. And I've thought about that over years. I never have cornered a rat. I try to keep him out in the open and smack him. Sin, though, when sin is cornered, it gets desperate. It'll jump for another, it'll look for another method. And the last place it wants to go is to God. And so it looks, so, so when you're blame shifting, it looks like it ain't working. What do I do? I gotta, I gotta deal with my guilt through doing better. When I can't get someone else to, to, when I can't shift it to someone else, then I know what I'll do. I'll just start doing better. We'd still deny it, but we deny it through an approach called do better. Up to this point, God's provision for man and woman had been perfect, but now they begin to figure out how they can provide for themselves. We don't need God. We can take care of ourselves, take care of this problem ourselves through a moral improvement plan. All we got to do is create enough distance between us and that last bad thing that we did, and we can start to feel better about ourselves, and we can start to convince ourselves that we've dealt with our guilt. We can better ourselves. We can remove our guilt. We do this. This is how we try to deal with guilt. I was thinking uh, this week about a little toy we used to have. I think we have a picture of it that at least if you were a child in the late 70s and the early 80s, does anybody raise your hand if you remember the magic slate? 
So you remember this, the magic slate, for those of all you kids that don't know what the magic slate is and you have iPhones to play with and stuff, this was what we looked forward to in our Christmas stocking <laughs> on Sunday morning. <laughs> This was, this was our iPad, you know what I'm saying? Like this, this was our, yeah, this was our idea of screen time, you know? It was the magic slate. Now, for those of you who didn't know what a magic slate was, what you did with this, on the top, right up top there, right underneath the little cat, was this little plastic thing, and you could write on this, because there was something underneath it, and you could write on it, and it would show up there. You could write whatever you wanted. And then after you had written something, you lifted the little uh, piece of plastic, and it erased it. And then you could write more. You could draw pictures and, and erase them. It was a magic slate. And I remember I discovered something. I discovered that uh, I wrote something, and I might have, I don't know what I wrote on there. I might have written a bad word or something. Or I wrote something that like, I was like a, it was like a journal, like a diary entry or something, something that I didn't want anybody else to see. And I thought, good, I'll just erase it. No one will see it. But then I noticed when I lifted it up, I could see the impression that the word had made on the little waxy board that was behind it. And I was really alarmed because, because I thought I got rid of it. I thought I cleaned the slate. I thought I took care of the problem. But then I realized I could keep wiping it as many times as I wanted. I couldn't get rid of it. You might be trying to make yourself feel better by doing some good things that outweigh that bad thing that you've done. But it will not remove the guilt of your sin. So that should lead us to a question, well, how do you get rid of it then? If I can't get rid of it, if I can't blame, my shift way, blame shift my way out of it, how can I get rid of it? Well, here's the purpose of, of the, the, the sermon and the purpose of these painful effects. I want to give you my main point. Here's the main point of the sermon. The purpose of the painful effects of sin is to push you to Jesus. The purpose of the painful effects of sin is to push you to Jesus. The purpose of the painful effect called guilt is to push you outside of yourself to a Savior. Jesus is his name. Although it seems very natural to try to avoid the pain of guilt, which sin has caused, we must reject this attempt and we must actually allow ourselves to feel guilt's pain in order that we might come to the great physician for the healing that only he can bring and he desires to bring and he came to bring. Amen? Amen. You can actually deal with guilt. It's not going to work to blame shift. It's not going to work to do better. What you need to do is own it, standing before God, and allow him to wash you clean with the blood of Christ, 
Jesus takes the guilt that is yours and you get his perfection in his place. He removes those garments that are full of sin and he clothes you in his righteousness. That's an incredible deal. That's called the gospel. No other method will be successful in removing your guilt before God. The purpose of the painful effects of sin is to push us to Jesus. So we've spoken about the first ever-present painful effect of the fall, guilt, which we attempt to escape through denial. Now the second one, and the second one is fear. There's a third one that's right here in this text, but it's even more prominent in verse 8, and we're going to deal with that one next week, and it's called shame. I'm going to give a whole sermon to that because there's a lot of shame wreaking havoc here and all over the world. And the gospel wants to help us with that. So let's talk about fear. What's the definition of fear? A painful or unpleasant feeling caused by the belief that something bad is going to happen. Something's dangerous. Something's going to cause me pain. Something's threatening me. That's what fear is. And verse 7 gives us a pathetic picture of Adam and Eve in the moments following their rebellion. They're aware of their spiritual nakedness, uh, spiritual nakedness and physical nakedness, and they found it intolerable and completely uncomfortable. And so immediately they begin to take matters into their own hands. And so they fabricated some uh, fig leaf speedos, which I just imagine were not very comfortable. But they probably looked at them, they, they hustled them together, grabbed some fig leaves, biggest, biggest leaf you could find in the Garden of Eden, sew them together, put them on. They probably thought, man, wait, wait, look too bad. Not bad, not bad. Covered over our fears and our guilt and our shame. But they've forgotten about God. And suddenly they hear his voice calling them in the garden and they are petrified. Filled with fear. Never felt, experienced the emotion of fear as it related to God, their creator, ever before. But now having disobeyed and rebelled, rebelled against him, they feel this emotion of fear and they hear him coming. He's looking for them. This reminds me of my brother Jerry and me when we accompanied my dad, who was a house painter, to the home of a very wealthy person and we went off to play in the house while my dad was painting with a Nerf football. Through the pass, he should have caught it, didn't, knocked off, <laughs> knocked off this vase. Or not a vase, it was a lamp. It knocked a lamp off the table. And this is like a multi-million dollars house. And there was a crash. And my brother and I got panicked, petrified. Now, nobody was at home in the house except for my dad, and we heard his footsteps coming. He heard it. And when he got there, we quickly, we realized, okay, it's not major. Like the lamp didn't shatter. It just broke the base off of it, the wooden base. But we realized, quick thinking, we put the base down, put the lamp on top of it, and it stayed. And dad walked in and we were like, what? <laughs> I heard a big crash. No problem. 
No problem. Nothing wrong in here, Dad. We got it. Now, I don't know. Somebody must have discovered that at some point, but my dad never did. He got off that job. We used to check. You done that job yet, Dad? Anybody ever mention anything? No, we never, ever said anything about it. I'm sure they discovered it when they moved. How do, what's the common method that we use for dealing with fear? Cover it up. What do we try to do? Run from it. We run from it, just like Adam and Eve ran from God. They ran back into the shrubbery. They might have even knocked off the fig leaves they had quickly fashioned for themselves. They're standing there in fear, clinging to each other, hearts beating, afraid for their lives because they know God will find them, but they hope that he won't. That's a dull fear that hangs over a lot of us, right? There's this secret hope. we got our whole life ahead of us, and maybe God, who's managing a lot, might just forget this. <laughs> might not come and find me. The Scriptures tell us we're going to give an account to God for every, even our careless words. So there's a fear that we have. This is a picture. They are a picture of all of us apart from Christ. We ought to run to God. God hasn't changed. God hasn't harmed us. God hasn't done anything wrong towards us. We've received nothing but good from him. We have wronged him. We have returned evil for good. And now in our fear of him, we run away. This is why Paul writes in Romans that there's no one who seeks God, not even one. It's not that God isn't there. It's not that God can't be found. He's revealed himself so clearly to us through Jesus and through the scripture. God is there and he can be found, but we don't seek him because we don't want to find him. And we don't want to be found out by him. We fear to come to him. So we run from him and we hide in whatever intellectual shrubbery or psychological shrubbery we can find. You know this, the Bible remains on the bestseller list year after year. I always marvel over that. And the reason why I marvel over it is because if the Bible's on the bestseller list, that means there's a lot of Bibles in circulation and there's so many Bible translations in circulation that it causes me to raise this question. Why... Is not anybody doing it? Why is the world such a mess? Why does the Bible seem to be so neglected? It's simple because the voice of God is heard in the Bible. It calls to us, where are you? And men and women and teens fear the voice of God and we run away from him. Why is the preaching, why is there more people at the Eagles game today than there is in the service? Why, why is the preaching of the word in church so badly attended? Well, we give a lot of excuses for it. Eagles season, busy schedules, the preaching doesn't really connect with me. There's so much hypocrisy among Christians. But the real reason, deep down, is that the voice of God is heard even through mediocre preaching. And we ain't trying to hear the voice of God. God's voice makes me uncomfortable. 
So what should we do? We should remember what the purpose of guilt and fear and shame are. The purpose of these ever-present painful effects is to what? It's to push you to who? Jesus. Do you get that point? you got to get this point. Because it's not enough to just feel your guilt. It's not enough to just feel your fear. It's not enough to just feel your shame. Those things are there. The effects of those things are there to get you looking for a solution, to get you looking for a Savior. They are intended to push you into the arms of Jesus. So what should we do when it comes to our fear? Well, when we have fear, we want to run away. We shouldn't run away from God. We should run, but not away. We should run to God. But that's hard, right? Because it's hard to believe that he's got open arms like he, like he did to the prodigal son. We have a hard time believing that. But that is the character of God. That's the character of God that we see in Genesis. And it is the character of God that we see throughout all of Scripture. A God who so longs to be reconciled to sinners that he gave what was most precious to him. His only son. To save us. That's God. So when you picture God standing there like this, thinking that maybe he won't accept you back. No, God comes to you with open arms. He invites you back. So don't run in your fear away from him. Where are you going to go? Run to him. He's a great savior. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He overcomes our fear and he clothes us, not in fig leaves, but in the garments of Christ. And they better. Friends, don't run from God. Run to him. Now, as we come to a close here, when we set this, when set in the larger context of the story, the serpent's words, I just want you to see this. The serpent's words to the first man and first woman are both true and false. They were true. He was right. Man and woman didn't immediately die physically. He spoke truth. He was right. Their eyes were opened. He told them their eyes would be open, and their eyes opened. And he was right. They obtained knowledge belonging to God. All of those things happened just as the serpent had promised. I want you to see this about the serpent so that you can see this about sin, so that you can see this about temptation. The serpent tells no outright lies, only highly suggestive half-truths. If, you're gonna, if we're going to build a gospel culture here in which we really do battle with sin, we got to remember that sin will never come to you telling you an outright lie. It never comes to you and says, hey man, do this and you'll ruin your life forever in hell. It never says that. Highly suggestive half-truths. Sin's power is in its ability to, to deceive us. So what is our weapon in our war, our ongoing war with sin for those that are in Christ? It's listening to God. It's listening to God's word. It's listening to God's voice. Gabe got up to pray at the, at the 
uh, the end of our singing, and he prayed something to this effect, that we would listen to God's voice, that we would listen to God's word. He didn't know that that's why I was ending this sermon. Our weapon in our battle with sin is that we would be people who would listen, not to the serpent, not to sin, not to temptation, but to God and his word. So this is what I see when I look at this story. Woman listens to the serpent. Man listens to the woman. Ain't nobody listening to God. We are called to be people who listen to God, to listen to his voice. If scripture is God's speech to us, then we can't hear the Holy Spirit unless our Bibles are open. You can't listen to God with your Bible closed. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Of course you can pray without having your Bible on you. My point is that as Christians, God has given us his word, and the Holy Spirit takes the word and speaks to us. So if you want to live a spirit-filled life, you're not going to do it with your Bible closed. If you want to live a spirit-led life, your Bible is going to be open. The ever-present painful effects of sin are intended to push us to Jesus, and we find Jesus in the Word of God. Let's cut out, church, some of the noise of our lives and create time to listen to God's voice through meditation on His Word. That's hard. It's hard for us. We were tempted to listen to so many other things. I mean, I think we should evaluate. How much time are you listening to social media? You can track these things. And then just compare it to how much time you got the Bible open. I'm not trying to guilt trip you. I'm trying to push you to Jesus. Because that, that's where you find life. And so let's give examination to those things. As we think about these painful effects that we all deal with, when we deal with guilt, we deal with fear, next week we'll look at shame. Let's see the the usefulness of those painful effects is to push us towards Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for giving us your word. And for how you speak to us from your word. Jesus, thank you that even when we see the painful effects, the ever-present painful effects of sin in our lives all around us, like guilt and fear and shame, that we can run to you. So I pray that we wouldn't look to deny our guilt, but that we would own it before you and find the freedom that comes in Christ. I pray that in our fears we wouldn't run away from you, but that we would run towards you. Thank you for your help and your rescue. In Jesus' name, amen.